There is a caterpillar in Arizona that can develop into two totally different forms depending on the season. Caterpillars born in the spring eat oak flowers. And as they grow, they start to look like the oak flowers they just ate, which helps them hide from predators. Caterpillars born later in the summer start out looking the same as those born earlier, but by late summer, the oak flowers are gone, so the caterpillars eat leaves instead. Those leaves are full of tannins, which totally changes how the caterpillar's bodies develop. Instead of mimicking flowers, these late-season caterpillars start to look like twigs, so they can blend in and avoid being eaten too. This type of response to different environments is something that we biologists call plasticity, the same set of genes resulting in two different outcomes depending on context. In this case, the ability of a caterpillar to develop into a flower mimic in spring and a twig mimic in summer is adaptive. It helps the caterpillar survive, and survival is part of fitness. But plasticity might not always help individuals better fit their environments. In some cases, it can even make things worse. That's an idea called non-adaptive plasticity, and it's received much less attention than adaptive plasticity. On today's episode, we talk with our friend Cameron Gallimbor. He's an evolutionary ecologist at Colorado State who studies, among other things, non-adaptive plasticity. Often what we find is that if you're becoming adapted to a particular environment, um, you can either solve the problem through plasticity or you can solve the problem through evolution and become locally adapted to that environment. In most cases, the, the plastic solution gets you pretty close, but it, it usually doesn't solve the problem as well as, as, as adaptation does. Cam argues that non-adaptive plasticity might sometimes speed up evolution because it puts populations under more selective pressure than adaptive plasticity. Almost since biologists even define plasticity, there have been discussions about whether it tends to dial back the strength of selection on plastic traits, or if it exposes populations to new selection regimes and facilitates evolution. Cam argues that non-adaptive plasticity might do more of the latter. If plastic responses don't fit organisms better to their environments, selection pressures could be ramped up. Cam says that this extra pressure, arising because plastic responses produce variation never before exposed to selection, might ultimately refine the way that some traits fit to their new environments. We met up with Cam at a bar in Tampa, Florida, during a conference for the Society of Integrative and Comparative Biology. We hope you don't mind the bar noise in the background. Cam, Marty, and I all edited a book together a few years ago about forward-looking ideas in organismal biology. That's how we got to know each other. Later in the episode, we talk with Cam about how his ideas and those we wrote about in the book fit together in the modern synthesis, what led to standard evolutionary theory, the one that ties together the ideas of Darwin and Mendel. Previous guests on the podcast, and here we're thinking of Dennis Noble and Massimo Piliucci, have argued that the modern synthesis missed some important concepts, including plasticity and niche construction. They and others think that these ideas mean that evolutionary biology needs an update, something called the extended evolutionary synthesis. Cam says that although plasticity is super important, he feels that it fits well into the original evolutionary framework. But as you'll hear, we don't quite agree, and although we didn't reach consensus, we were able to identify some opportunities for new research. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Let's see. I think the first thing that we want to do um, is to try to maybe use your definition of plasticity or talk about your definition of plasticity in case by chance it is different. Get us all on the same page. And then to a relatively quick extent move to um, the particular topic we wanted to cover, which is non-adaptive plasticity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so so plasticity, I mean, I can see why you guys have had this as a recurring topic because it's it's a uh, uh, it's something that affects all levels of, of biology from, you know, uh, the molecular to the whole organism level. And we typically define plasticity as a very simple phenomenon, which is that uh, the same set of genes can produce uh, diversity of different types of phenotypes depending on the environmental context uh, that organisms find themselves in. So that's the, the kind of commonly accepted definition. Um, so before you, before you go farther, can I, can I break in and ask, is it that the three of us have talked so much about these types of things? A few years ago, the three of us edited a volume on sort of forward thinking and the role of organisms in evolutionary biology. Um, but, but you sort of just took up our mantle about plasticity maybe being something important. I mean, how, why do you think that it's important? I guess, are we going to talk about that more later, or are yeah. we right in talking about that as important? No, I think it's, it's uh, immensely important, and um, it's particularly important when you start to try to ask how exactly do organisms evolve and adapt to their environments. And so a lot of our uh, evolutionary theory that deals with how genetic change occurs across populations or across, over time um, largely leaves out the role for plasticity because it, it adds this level of complexity that we on one hand recognize is very common in nature, but at the same time uh, it's very difficult to model because it's, it's very context dependent. So people just don't want to go to the trouble of dealing with the complexity? Well, historically, but uh, increasingly there are now models that are um, incorporating the sort of context dependency of plasticity and asking, you know, do you get a different sort of answer or a different outcome if you incorporate plasticity into your models? And in, in many cases you do. So you are saying context dependency of plasticity, but plasticity is context dependency. What do you, are you, that's, a, that's an interesting way to, to talk about plasticity. Yeah, so I mean, by, by definition, uh, plasticity is context dependent in the sense that um, if you're trying to predict the phenotype, um, it depends on the environment that you find yourself in. And so, you know, many of these examples of plasticity are, are clearly adaptive, and they're the kind of examples that really capture our imagination as, as, as biologists. So, you know, uh, caterpillars that eat a certain level of tannin in the leaves that then develop into uh, flower mimics, you know, which protect them from bird predators, or develop into things that mimic sticks, uh, which again provide protection against predators. Like these are clearly adaptive examples of you know an, uh, a plastic response in re you know to a, a particular environmental cue. So so we recognize that you know these these kind of plastic changes are are somewhat ubiquitous and and have evolved in response to natural selection, uh, but. They historically haven't been incorporated into the models because putting in that kind of environmental heterogeneity into a lot of the sort of traditional population genetic models has been very, very difficult. 
So, so yeah, I'm bringing it up because, sorry, Art, because in the past we've, I think we challenged Mihaela Pavlichev, sorry to ask people to go back and listen to other episodes, but this came up a little bit with her, where we asked her specifically about what uh, my lab loves to hear me call plasticity and plasticity. And you're talking really about the phenotype being context dependent, not so much plasticity, regulatory plasticity, turning up and down body temperature or things like that being plastic. I don't want to go too much into the weeds about this, but, but I, I mean, I think you're just talking about a lot of traits change mostly developmentally depending on environmental gradients and things. And so that is the context dependency of the phenotype. So, so, so you don't mean the context, the, the plasticity in the plasticity itself. There's not some like meta level of plasticity we're talking about that here. That makes right? my head hurt. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I think we, I think we have to kind of like separate things out a little bit to kind of make that clear. Um, first of all, we can say, is a trait plastic? And that, this could be any trait. It could be something like uh, body mass or body temperature. Uh, but it could also be something like um, the number of RNA transcripts that are you know, produced by a particular gene. So some traits are plastic and change in response to the environment, and other traits don't. And so if traits don't change in response to the environmental context, then you know, you can say with, with some predictability that, you know, across a range of environments, you'll see the same trait. And if the trait is plastic, then we say, by definition, plasticity means that there's some predictability in terms of what the phenotype will look like under certain environmental conditions. It's not just that it's different from one environment not, to another. Not it's that it's just, just different. Of, yeah. it, it has to be predictable. The, if, it, if it was unpredictable, then it would be something like what we would call developmental noise, where the phenotype changes, but it changes in a way that's not predictable. And, and that's different from plasticity. And that's sometimes something that a lot of people confuse, uh, even in some of the evolutionary models, uh, developmental noise with plasticity that that does happen so so getting back to your question of like the context dependency if you know the context if you know the environment then you could with some probability predict what the phenotype would actually be so if it's if it's a physiological trait like say um, body temperature like in an ectotherm you would know that as environmental temperatures increase, the body temperature of the um, organism is also going to increase, you know, to some degree. That's a very, so that trait is, is plastic. Um, and, and in that particular case, the plasticity is reversible. Um, in other cases, uh, if that same ectotherm may be developed under warmer or colder conditions, it might develop a morphology that's different. Again, that might be predictable based on the temperature, but then that becomes fixed, and they, they're stuck with that phenotype then the rest of their life. So, so here you have now a case of something that was plastic during development and then now is no longer plastic anymore. Rever that word reversibly plastic during development, and then at some yeah. point it gets fixed. Right, so traits like, that's entered and stuck. traits like phys physiological traits, behavioral traits, those are inherently reversibly plastic, um, whereas... Some morphological traits, uh, some life history traits, those are plastic, but then maybe become fixed once you reach adulthood, and then maybe don't change after that. So, so this is now a 
this is now a fairly common you know distinction that people make in the literature. How, how important do you think reversibility is for the way these traits evolve? I mean, are those like a reversible and irreversible kinds of plasticity just two separate beasts entirely, or? Well, they they fall under you know sort of the the same umbrella, but I think they do have very different kinds of consequences for uh, for the organism because traits that are developmentally plastic and then don't change, you're basically stuck with for the rest of your life. And so the kinds of opportunities that organisms basically are afforded when they are stuck with those traits become somewhat more limited, I think. Um, traits that, have, that show reversible plasticity, potentially some people have argued, um, maybe offer more opportunity for organisms. So having a, a lot of behavioral plasticity, for example, might allow you to exploit a wider range of environments. Uh, you might explore different habitats. You might feed on different kinds of food. Um, and, and that, in turn, might open up kind of some, some have argued, evolutionary opportunities that might not otherwise be available to a, a less plastic sort of or organism. Okay. So maybe let's um, dig into this idea of non-adaptive plasticity. I think it was really useful to talk about plasticity in the context of this predictability. It's not something that we've really brought up in the past when talking about plasticity. So it's good to distinguish the difference between variation that sort of comes about because environment and that which comes about because the genome maybe saw it in the past and there's this somewhat canalized response yeah. that they just usually use. But you've been, uh, I guess, working on this concept of non-adaptive plasticity for a while. Do you want to talk about what it is and maybe the history? I mean, one of the interesting things, we've been talking for a little while before we started recording about your history with non-adaptive plasticity and more recent <laughs> investigation. Yeah, so it's a... So I would say probably 95 to 98 percent, maybe even more, of all of the work on plasticity has been focused on its role either as uh, an adaptive response to the environment that happens, you know, within a, within the lifetime of an individual, or how that adaptive plasticity then subsequently affects evolutionary change. So those have been sort and, of. And just to be clear about what you mean by adaptive plasticity, that means that. Uh, an animal or a genotype finds itself in an environment that induces a particular trait, and the induction of that trait is advantageous to that animal or genotype compared to to other genotypes or animals that don't induce that. That's like a tongue twister way of saying that, but sure. So I mean, I think maybe we could give a uh, an example of something that would be like a really good example. So there there was a paper that came out recently. Uh, on um, adaptation to uh, the dark lava flows of, um, uh, I think in, uh, I can't remember now which Idaho, state. Right? In, I, I believe yeah. it was in Idaho, yeah. So, so lizards have the capacity to change color and modify the melanophores in their skin to either become darker or lighter. And if you're darker... On, a, on these dark lava flows, um, you're more cryptic and you're more camouflaged and less likely to be picked off by a bird predator, for example. So if you could be plastic and make your skin darker on the lava flow, 
um, that would be considered adaptive plasticity relative to an individual that lacked that ability and uh, was maybe very light colored and stood out like a sore thumb. So, so in this case, you know, we're, we're making a, a little bit of a kind of an assumption that being um, matching your background provides better camouflage and is, is, is beneficial and adaptive that way. That's something that probably should be tested directly, maybe by putting out models of different color and seeing if the lighter ones get picked off. But this is an idea that's it's been around since Kettlewell, exactly. butterflies, Vista Metalaria. Exactly. Ago, yeah. So, so we have a lot of reasons to, you know, but but just like any trait, saying something's adaptive or non-adaptive is is always you're always on a little tricky, slippery yeah. slope there. <laughs> you know, you could fall into storytelling. So, um, yeah, so in, in this case, we have a, a, a trait, color, it's plastic, it changes in a way that we think is adaptive, and, and then subsequently, that plasticity has influenced the population in, in allowing them to colonize and persist in this new environment, and over many thousands of generations, um, that plasticity has probably been very important as as part of the process of adaptation. And in that particular study, what the authors found was that um, there was a, a mutation arose and basically fixed the color to make them now constitutively darker and better adapted to that environment. So. Okay, that's good. So now, can we, hold on, I mean, I don't want you to speak too much to somebody else's research, but something you said there's a little bit surprising. Why is the fact that they had constitutive dark coloration better adapted? I mean, why couldn't they just stick with the plasticity? Well, so often what we find is that if you're becoming adapted to a particular environment, um, you can either solve the problem through plasticity or you can solve the problem through evolution and become locally adapted to that environment. In most cases, the, the plastic solution gets you pretty close, but it, it usually doesn't solve the problem as well as, as, as adaptation does. And so, um, and that partly also gets back to the, uh, a really critical idea, which is that there has to be variation in, or in the population. So. You know, where does adaptive plasticity come from? I think this is the real crux of what a lot of people really want to know is that, you know, it's great that uh, an animal can change color to match its background or it can change its morphology or its behavior in ways that seem that they're adaptive. But where did that come from? Is that just did that just sort of magically happen? It had to come from the standing variation that was in the population. So some individuals were a little bit better at getting dark. Some individuals were not so good at getting dark. The ones that weren't so good, those have been eliminated from the population over time. And eventually you see a shift towards individuals that are you know, better at matching their background. And what theory would tell us is that unless you're going back to the light-colored environment and encountering that and, and you have to keep that plasticity, if you're now just always in a dark environment, there's maybe you know, less selection to maintain the plasticity in the population. It can be lost. 
And if you find something better, like uh, a mutation that arises in the color pathway that makes you darker and better match the environment, well, then you would see a transition from plasticity to... But, but can, I, can I just sit back for a second and... Uh... So, so I, I think maybe the, the sort of larger view here is that plasticity allows populations to develop a variety of solutions to a range of environmental situations. And then what you're saying is that over evolutionary time, those alternative solutions that we call plasticity can, can be fixed. And so in a sense, plasticity leads to the generation of this variation that can later be canalized uh, into sort of longer-term evolutionary solutions? Is that, yeah, is that so a that, fair way to say it? That, that's that's yeah. certainly like one model of like, you know, when because obviously when you move into a new environment, the environment changes. That initial response, whether you're talking about behavior, physiology, morphology, whatever, is going to be plastic, whatever happens within the generation of an individual. Yeah. So at some level, plasticity has to play some initial role in, you know, how the population evolves and adapts to that new environment. If, if you think about it in the context of colonizing, say, uh, a new environment. So that, that, that's one way that things can happen. And so, so this is what some people refer to as uh, the Baldwin effect or genetic assimilation, as you called it, where you're plastic and then you basically no longer require the environmental cue to induce the plasticity and you just produce the trait constitutively after that. But that's that's just one one scenario that where plasticity could play a role. The other possibility is you move into a new environment and now you're in an environment that Historically, the population has never seen before. Maybe it's a, a novel temperature, a novel predator, competitor, some disease, something that the population has never experienced in the past. So they're still going to show some kind of plastic response to this new environmental cue, perhaps. But they don't have any evolutionary history with it. So then the question is, why would you expect the plasticity then to be adaptive under those conditions? You probably won't. What you, and I think what, what we've shown and I think what a lot of other studies are now showing is that novel environments basically induce uh, a variety of plastic responses. So different genotypes respond slightly different to the new environment. And then selection now has an opportunity to act on that variation and basically sort such that you know the best, the best genotypes yeah. persist and the worst are eliminated. Just we, we talked about that a little bit with Mahela a couple of episodes ago about um, the accumulation of genetic variation that then gets expressed in novel environments, and you have this sudden surge of, of previously unseen variation that selection can then sort. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So. so, you know, we one one way that we've kind of try to conceptualize or visualize this is that the if you imagine over a, a range of temperatures or a range of environments that the the trait of interest which is plastic is sort of shaped by selection and so you have this very nice behavior so you can imagine like tension on a string a, across a range of environments so selection maintains that tension anything that deviates away from that is going to be eliminated because it it's it's 
showing a, a, a less adaptive response. So over many generations, you have this very predictable sort of plastic response. You probably have less variation in the population. And then you move into a new environment. Now, selection ha has never had an opportunity to act on that plasticity. And so it's like if every individual is a, is a string that's under tension, now the string is free to sort of fly in the wind. And this is sort of what some people would say is the expression of a cryptic genetic variation. It's been there the whole time, but it's just there's never been an environment in which it's had to be expressed in. And so now, where, did the, where does adaptive plasticity come from? Well, now it acts on that variation. So a lot of individuals will probably show a non-adaptive response. They won't do the right thing in that environment, and they'll be eliminated. Those individuals that do the right thing, hopefully, it's you know, if, if not, the population goes extinct. If some individuals do, those are the ones that then persist, and you can, and then the the tension on the string in the new environment is sort of reestablished. So what all of this hinges on, and one of the things that's always sort of stuck in my head is novelty. I mean, whether it's not obvious at all for us to call anything novel for things that do their job out in their natural environments. So when you work in a system, even if you know the organisms well, I don't know, the species that I work on, we have a really hard time when we study things along these lines. It's really hard to know what novel is. So, I mean, one, you can't ask your study organism what's novel. So you're sort of forced to look at its response and then call that must have been novel because it's not doing what you know you you would expect or what seems no, to be. Fit. I mean, I think that's a really good really good point because you know again and it gets back to this idea of context and you know we can we can observe the the range of environmental conditions that a population sort of occupies. Now, let's, and so like something like temperature, I think is really interesting because if you look at the response to temperature, the plastic response um, with regard to say metabolic rate or thermal acclimation, what you find is that oftentimes the plasticities can be interpreted as being adaptive. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense because historically temperature is something that does vary quite a bit and whether on a diurnal diurnal scale or on a seasonal level. So organisms see quite a bit of variation in, in temperature. So there is this opportunity for selection imposed by temperature to, to act. But if you get into something like a pollutant that a population's never seen before, like uh, something that is, you know, novel. <laughs> like a disease that hasn't been around before. But you know, so I mean, now, now that's in my wheelhouse when it comes to diseases, it's pretty rare that the disease is completely novel. Right? It's always related to something yeah, else. Everything has a legacy. It's the way that it works. We all had an ancestor. So most of the things that infect you, especially with certain types of parasites, a lot of viruses, for example, you cannot get infected by those things because they're such simple organisms that the chance that they have the machinery that's necessary to get into your cells is relatively low, right? But then you also have examples where you have these sort of diseases that sweep through. Um, I mean, I, I think about like the colonization of North America and the diseases that Europeans brought with them that 
apparently, you know, Native Americans had very little immunity towards. Right. The difficulty, though, is that is novel. But when something is novel, it's also different. So using novel as a generic category is a really hard thing to do. Yeah, right? I, a whole bunch of novel might not do the same thing as that kind of novel. <laughs> yeah, right? I, and I think that's very often the case. I, I mean, I agree that you, we have to be careful about that. I mean, it, it's it's sort of like one of these terms like stress. <laughs> oh, no. Let's not go there. Please don't. <laughs> we haven't had nearly enough beers with that. We have to do an episode on stress yeah. at some point, but that's going to be a, a tricky one. Yeah, so, but, but I do agree. I mean, I, I think... We, we do use these terms sometimes loosely, and um, but I, but I, at the same time, I, I, I do feel like you know there there is kind of a history of selection pressures that you know most organisms that are locally adapted to a given environment are probably subject to stabilizing selection. The the traits that the mean average trait for a population sits somewhere around you know what's what's optimal for that environment and then when the environment changes I mean then this has been one of the you know kind of big questions in evolutionary biology is when the environment changes very quickly and you have to move from one adaptive peak to another in the absence of something like plasticity you have to go through this fitness valley and, you know, Haldane referred to this as like the cost of selection, where so many individuals are removed by selection that the population really can sometimes not recover and will go extinct. So, so adaptive plasticity could be very helpful to smooth the fitness surface and move from one peak to another, but it could also make it worse. It can make that valley even deeper if the plasticity takes you it's further the away. Yeah. From, and that's... Yeah. So I think maybe that's a good segue into non-adaptive plasticity, sort of circling back around to this. But um, so you wrote a paper in 2015 in Nature and you did, a, I think, a really amazing experiment on, on guppies and you examined whether or not the plasticity was adaptive or non-adaptive and you found some surprising things. So not to ask you to give us a paper report, but can you just sort of summarize what, what was that experiment and, and why is it a big deal? Okay, well, so first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that historically there's been a lot of work on guppies. So we know a lot about their sort of ecology and their evolution. And, sort of a the, model system now for it, evolutionary ecology, it's a, it's things a, in the wild, right? Very yeah. much a model yeah. system for studying evolution in the wild. And so this builds off of the work of Carl Haskins, John Endler, Dave Resnick, uh, Anne McGurr, and many others. And so what we know is that guppies are small fish, and um, their sort of ancestral environment is to live in big rivers in very diverse fish communities where they're small fish and basically food for big fish. <laughs> Snacks. So they experience very high mortality. Uh, everything likes to eat them. And most of the traits that they exhibit in that environment um, help them sort of deal with predators. They have very fast life histories. They're very dull in color. They grow very quickly. Uh, live fast, die young. Say that. 
But as you move up into the um, headwaters of these bigger rivers, into the small tributaries, the bigger predatory fish fall out. And you basically just get guppies and, and one other slightly larger fish species. And so they're removed from the predators. And in the absence of predation, they completely change. Um, they are more brightly colored. They have a sort of more of a slow life history. They, um, their behavior changes. They're, they show less schooling, less shoaling. Um, they don't swim as fast. Uh, they're less, well, they're, they, they do a better, uh, they're more poor um, at uh, sort of swimming and escaping from predators. Escape speeds are slow. Escape speeds are yeah. slower, exactly. Morphology is different, goes along with that. So we have this, this long history of knowing these differences. And we know that uh, a lot of these traits are genetically based. We know that uh, if you bring them into a common garden and you breed them for two generations, the traits persist. Um, in some cases, we know some of the actual genetic basis of some of these traits. So, so in other words, it's not just plasticity that explains yeah, that so we, upstream. We, we yeah. don't, we, we, but we don't know. We, we know that it's not a just a, a plastic response to the environment. But what we don't know is, did plasticity play some role? in the adaptation to these low predation environments. Right. And so that's what we were really interested in in this study, was we wanted to know if you take the fish that normally live with predators and you transplant them into streams that lack predators and you know something about what their plastic response is, is that plastic response on average in the same direction as the sort of evolved responses or or not? Is there is there a relationship? It, you know, so if, if plasticity is adaptive, it's maybe is helping them get established and playing the sort of first step. Um, but maybe some of these traits aren't plastic. And so we we had we'd studied a few traits. We'd studied shoaling behavior, we'd studied growth rate, we'd studied body shape. And some things showed adaptive plasticity and a few things showed non-adaptive plasticity, but we only had a handful of traits and we couldn't really draw any general conclusions. So to, to deal with that, we decided to look at uh, gene expression. So we looked at the patterns of gene expression in the brain uh, in response to the presence and absence of chemical cues of the predator. We had to use the chemical cues because you can't let the... We, we didn't have much data because the predators ate all the fish. So, um, so, but it turns out that these chemical guppies live in a very uh, sort of olfactory-driven environment. They're very sensitive to the presence of these chemical cues. And so, do, do they have to see the predators? Would it help if they saw them? No. Um, we, we've, so in the, in the lab, we can add a predator to the water supply of guppies and... We can compare brothers and sisters that are, you know, side by side. The ones that are in the that have predators in the water supply that are getting these chemical cues, within minutes of the predator being introduced, they they move to the top of the water column, they curl up, and then they go hide in the back corner of the tank. <laughs> and their brothers and sisters are swimming around happy and fine. You you go to feed them, they're like your pet dog. They come to the front, they 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 stay right there and they wait for the food to drop. And their brothers and sisters with the predator cue are hiding in the back. Wow. So scared out of their minds. They're scared out of their minds. And if the food even falls just, you know, uh, 12 inches down to the bottom of the tank, they won't go down and eat it because presumably it, it's, it's not a safe place. 
So we, we asked, what was the consequence of that presence and absence of that predator cue on how patterns of gene expression develop in the brain? And our, our um, sort of experimental design that was really helpful was that we could go and take guppies that historically have not lived with predators and look at the pattern of gene expression in the brain. And that sort of gave us an idea of where we thought they should evolve towards. And then we had the, a source population that lived with predators, so we had the starting point. And then we introduced guppies from that high predation population into streams that lacked guppies that had been washed out by a flood. And so we could, we could say, okay, let's now, we know the starting point, we have an expectation of what the end point should be. Let's see how plasticity helps them or doesn't help them get to where we think they should go. And that's the other thing that's nice about guppies. Previous work's shown that within a few years, these traits will evolve. So guppies have three to four generations per year. So super short-term evolutionary sh- experiments that you can do. Yeah, so treating the streams kind of like test tubes. In the lifetime of a grant. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is what Dave Resnick calls them, these experimental test tube streams. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and so, uh, so we did this. We did this introduction, and um, after one year, after three or four generations, we brought all the fish into the lab. We raised them for two generations to try to minimize the kind of epigenetic maternal effects that might might persist. And then we said, "All right, what's the? How does gene expression change in these high predation fish um, when you take away the predator cue? That's the plastic response. So we knew that." Then we looked at the introduction fish and we said, well, how, what, are their, what are their patterns of gene expression look like in the presence and absence of the predator cue? And are they becoming more similar to the populations that live without predators? Or are they still like their, their, their kind of uh, source population? And we found two things that were really interesting. If you just look at the whole transcriptome, if you look at all almost 30,000 genes, after one year, the introduction fish were completely different from the source population that they had come from. And they were more similar, well, in some genes, they were more similar to populations that lived without predators. Historically. So it, it looked like they had evolved. But, but that... That, there was a problem there because we only introduced a small number of fish and we didn't know if the changes that we saw were due to founder effects or genetic drift, you know, sampling, just by chance, these could be different, not because they actually evolved due to natural selection. Mm-hmm. So we said, okay, let's just look at a subset of genes that were plastic in the same direction and became more like a low predation sort of uh, pattern of expression. So, um, so the, the, the change in expression had to be in the right direction, and it had to be parallel in, in the introduction population. So it couldn't just be that one population did one thing, another population did something else. They had to all go in the same direction. Which may indicate just some kind of random exactly. so, effective drift. Exactly. So, so we, we were very, we tried to be very conservative and we basically came down to about a hundred genes out of like 30,000 that we said, these, these are changing in, in a way that's less, that is unlikely to have occurred by chance. And we said, okay, great. We found a hundred genes that 
are now showing differences in expression that are more like low predation fish. I wonder what their pattern of plasticity was in the source population. If we look at the change in plasticity, is it in the same direction? If we look at the high predation population, or is it in, the, in an opposite direction? And to our surprise, all those genes, almost all of those genes showed non-adaptive plasticity, meaning that the ancestor, when you take away the predator, show changes in expression that are in the opposite. In sort of the wrong direction. Wrong direction than what the evolutionary pattern is. So that was at first puzzling, and I thought this contradicts something that I wrote before because I always thought plasticity should be adaptive and help populations, not work against them. But then I thought about it, and it actually makes a lot of intuitive sense, which is that if you move into a new environment and you show adaptive plasticity, then that trait that shows that adaptive plasticity is going to be under pretty weak selection because you're doing a pretty good job of matching your phenotype to the new environment. But if you do the wrong thing, you're under really strong selection to change. And so our interpretation was that a lot of these genes that are showing this non-adaptive plasticity, the reason, well, the reason these genes are evolving so quickly is because in this new environment, they don't do the right thing. They do the wrong thing. And so they're under stronger selection to, to change and evolve. Yeah, that's great. Does that so make I, sense? Yeah. I have a bunch of things I want to dig, dig into. Maybe I'll just, I'll just I'll pick one and then you can go. Uh, so, so one is um, it feels like quite an abstraction to consider RNA levels, so expression levels of genes, as a trait. And you know, as an organismal biologist myself, I generally don't think at that level. I think about sort of more, you know, th things that you can see and 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 sort of measure at a macro level. So, what are those traits that those those gene transcripts are affecting at a more macro level? Well, that that that's a <laughs> that's a really good question, and uh, the simple answer is we don't know. And you know, if you look at a lot of studies of gene expression, you know, the people can do a very good job now of isolating a particular tissue at a particular time, and either freezing that tissue or chemically treating it, and basically getting a snapshot in time of you know, how many RNA transcripts are being expressed at that particular time. And inevitably what we find is, what you see is that people get these results and they, they really don't know how to interpret them. There might be a few genes that they say like, okay, this is a, a gene that we think might be affecting the trait that we're interested in, but we often don't know. And so so case, if you do that for your 100 genes, is it obvious what their functions are? No, I mean, they're, 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 uh, they're very boring when you, when you do the annotation and... Um, and they, um, but they're, they're generally kind of genes that um, are involved in some aspect of metabolism, hmm. if you had to put them in a category. Right. And, um, and so we really tried to avoid making any interpretation on um, what they actually did. Um, we know the brain is important for many behaviors, and presumably there's some connection between yeah. uh, the patterns of expression in the brain and the, the changes in behavior, but we... We didn't want to go there. So we just tr said, let's just treat the, the number of transcripts that are being expressed as our phenotype. And other people have used this approach yeah. as well. No, no, I, I think it's a reasonable thing, and it gives you a much higher throughput way of analyzing you know, traits, right? And you right. can get 
30,000 traits, essentially, that you're analyzing instead of six. That's that, right, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly the motivation. So you did some of the things, I mean, one of the things that, boy, we keep, I guess, invoking Mahala again. I guess you'll be happy or frustrated or both, I don't know. But um, one of the things that I think you guys tackled, which could have come up, is whether these things are sort of varying consistently. So whether they're actually independent units, right? Because you're calling it a hundred, but how do you really know that it's actually a hundred? Yeah, no, that's a good point. So, you know, there's there's certainly probably other genes that maybe weren't significant that got left out of our analysis. So, again, we tried to be conservative. But the other important point is that we know that gene expression is controlled by other sorts of regulatory processes. So, either other other genes or hormones or other kinds of um, sort of regulatory mechanisms that we would call them. So so we we acknowledge that you know these aren't each each particular set of transcripts is not like an independent trait. Um, but if you do certain statistical analysis, what you find is that these genes are distributed across uh, numerous modules across the transcriptome. And so we think each module is more or less independent of each other and that, you know, certainly the number of regulatory changes that underlie this is far fewer than the actual number of transcripts that we, we, we counted. But it's probably more than one or two as well. And, um, you know, the, this is really, a, a, I think we have to think about the, these transcripts as, as complex phenotypes, just like body shape is made up of many interacting factors it's it's the same so that's why i bring the question up because i um i mean i, I understand I, I get the elegance it is quite elegant to use the expression and leverage you know this an enormous database to do this sort of thing because like you said you can't really do this for a, a battery of other traits and the guppy system is one of the one of the best studied systems in which you could really do this from natural population so if you guys can't do it in that system we don't have many other options so 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 that part's neat but when you take into consideration that genes do tend to work in these sort of network configurations the number goes from 100 to less and you said that they were in modules i mean i guess that it would be really interesting to try to push the envelope into the space where you can get a handle on really how many modules are working this way. Because in that case, maybe it's not so much non-adaptive. These are the brain, right? So if these are working on brain metabolism in a particular way to help the organism cope, well, it's not non-adaptive at all, right? No, and, and I mean, that, that brings up a it brings up another important point, which is that Unlike thinking about more typical organismal traits, um, working with these transcripts has sort of two big disadvantages, I think. One is that you're further away from fitness. And so, like you said, this trying to make some interpretation about like how these genes affect brain metabolism and whether it's adaptive or non-adaptive um, becomes really challenging. Um, but this was partly why we said, well, we have a population that lives in that environment. We assume it's locally adapted. So whatever pattern it shows, we think is what's been under selection. So that was our sort of point of reference. So again, we, 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 we can't really say with a lot of confidence exactly how the changes that we observe reduce fitness. 
we assume it must not have reduced it that much because if it was a really drastic reduction in fitness, these introduction fish probably wouldn't have gone, wouldn't have persisted. They would have gone extinct. They, they were completely mismatched to their environment. So, so that there was enough variation and um, selection was strong enough, but probably not too strong that allowed the populations to evolve and adapt. But, but I think you raise another important point, which is that when we start thinking about the transcriptome, and I think this is a point that maybe you and Art will appreciate, and I think something that has really changed my thinking is that if we think about the transcriptome as sort of having two roles, one role is, and, and this is actually true for any trait, that sometimes you want to buffer yourself from the environment and you don't want to change and sometimes you want to embrace the environment and and use the environmental cues to show a, a plastic response that that's adaptive and so organisms are really caught in between and depending on what set of traits you look at you know you either want to be more canalized or you want to be more plastic and I think for looking at the patterns of gene expression Right now, we don't really have a good sense of how much of the changes we observe are just trying to like stabilize the phenotype, the transcriptome, to this new environment. All of a sudden, these new environmental cues are here. It's knocking everything out of whack. Right. So all of the underlying genetic changes could be simply canalizing some other trait. They could right. be canalizing some other trait, trying to stabilize it. And then the, the evolutionary response might be to just get back to where you were before. Right. Before you moved into this new environment that smells very different and is a very different response from from where you were at before yeah and in fact if you look at these transcripts what we found is that um, compared to the source population where they came from in the introduction fish they're now less plastic huh. so when you look at their response to the presence and absence of the predator cue their plasticity is much lower huh. so that to me says that Selection's trying to kind of stabilize, you know, these patterns of expression yeah, yeah. Um, rather than trying to change them in a way that makes them necessarily better adapted. So I, I want to circle back to one of the issues we kind of touched on earlier, and I was, I was thinking about the, you know, what, what is it like for these fish to go from a, a, a low stream where there's lots of predators up to a very high stream and a predator-free zone? And... And in a sense, that's that's a highly novel thing for that that lineage, right? So, probably in their you know near evolutionary history, they've not experienced no predators around for many many generations. And so, in, in that sense, getting transported to a high mountain stream that's predator free is like almost like being uh, you know assaulted by a, a new chemical in the environment, right? It's something that's that's sort of qualitatively novel. And so, you might expect. That in fact, like like we said before, that they would have these sort of maladaptive responses because it's just not something that they've had any evolutionary history with. That's right, and it, it's it's actually even worse than that. Oh, oh okay. Well, do tell. <laughs> because it's not just predators. Um, because yeah, everything else changes. Everything too, right? else changes. So yeah. you take the predators away, the population grows. Um, it gets they reach very high densities. It becomes a very competitive environment. Huh. It's a very nasty environment, actually. Huh. Uh, very difficult for young fish to recruit into because uh, food's more All limiting. All food gets eaten. And you have a, you're in a small, tiny stream in a tropical rainforest. There's very little light, so there's very little food, and you have all these other fish that you're competing against. Uh -huh. So 
you know, we, you, in some ways, removing the predators makes it maybe a little bit more benign, but but the release from predators introduces other kinds of environmental stressors. Uh-huh. So the just as the way that the trade itself is sort of multivariate, the environment is also multivariate. So we don't really know if if we had uh, instead of doing presence and absence of predator cues, we had done low density and high density, we probably would have got a completely different set of genes and maybe even different sets of results. Yeah, and that, uh, where I was going with that thought is that um, that if you had picked some other cue or some other environmental condition besides predators, that the ancestral population actually was experiencing as variation in its own environment. That is it possible then that you would have gotten that plasticity to sort of, you know, twist around 90 degrees and be adaptive, right? Because then they would have this historical legacy of dealing with all of the the that's exactly know, different spots in the spectrum. Yeah, that's exactly what I predict. Yeah. If you're a regular listener of Big Biology, you've heard us talk about plasticity before. And if you haven't heard these episodes yet, check out our conversations with Massimo Piliucci in Episode 7 and with Mihaila Pavlichev in Episode 13. You might also check out our chat with Dennis Noble in Episode 2. In Episode 7, Massimo argued that ideas like plasticity should force biologists to update evolutionary theory. That theory, the modern synthesis, combines ideas from Darwin and Mendel to create a sort of backbone for biology. It's probably the most basic theory that biologists use to explain the natural world. The problem for Massimo and others is that plasticity sits uneasily inside the modern synthesis. It gives the environment two roles, a source of selection, old news, but also a source of variation, which was supposed to be the purview of genes and mutations. Although plasticity can be studied like other traits, as Cam emphasized, proponents of the extended evolutionary synthesis, they wonder whether we miss something important when we do that. We talked with Cam about how his research on non-adaptive plasticity fits into the synthesis and whether he thinks we need an extended evolutionary synthesis or not. So, so yeah, what are you thinking about this, especially the role of plasticity in the changing the synthesis does evolutionary biology need an update and where does that where does plasticity fit in such an update well at the time at the uh, at the time that we uh, we wrote that chapter I think I I was very much thinking that you know we we really did need this more extended evolutionary synthesis and that um, that we really were fundamentally missing uh, some aspect some aspects of both plasticity and, and other sorts of processes that had been largely left out. And so my, my, my thinking's actually changed on that. And even though I'm, I'm very interested in plasticity, I now, I think, when I look at it from a historical perspective, I see that the, the tension and the struggle to incorporate individuals and plasticity and development into evolutionary theory goes all the way back to the time of Darwin. And, and it's something that biologists have been struggling with for a very long time. So there have been, been various synthetic efforts. Uh, Conrad Waddington, um, Schmalhausen, um, even going back to um, 
uh, a contemporary of Fisher, uh, Lancelot, uh, um, Hogben, <laughs> all struggled with the same idea. And I think in some ways we're, we're revisiting a lot of old ideas. And for me, the big change has been that we often use terms. We criticize the modern synthesis for not including certain things. I can't. If I had a dollar for every paper I've now read that says, you know, the modern synthesis didn't include developmental biology or didn't include plasticity or didn't include niche construction, I'd be very, very wealthy. <laughs> and, and, and I think the problem that I see is that those terms, um, they, they refer to, to certain phenomenon that weren't included in the modern synthesis, partly for terminological, you know, perspectives, you know, that um, I guess people knew about plasticity, but um, it wasn't that popular of a term in the West. And it may have been treated as a sort of a, um, you know, a, a fly in the ointment, so to speak, you know, that made more problems than people wanted. But, but ultimately, I think what what the proponents of the extended evolutionary synthesis are not doing is trying to show exactly how things like plasticity, niche construction, epi, 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 um, epigenetics um, influence the standard theory. And so for me, for example, I've stopped using terms like genetic assimilation and genetic accommodation. What I want to know is if I want to predict the strength of selection on the uh, change in a particular trait from one generation to the next, there's already a very good statistical model. It's the, either the breeder's equation or um, the multivariate version of it, which says that you can understand how a trait changes from one generation to the next if you know how much genetic variation there is, what kind of genetic variance and covariance there is, and how strong selection is directly or indirectly. So somebody who's interested in plasticity, I want to know how does plasticity change the strength of selection. And so if you show adaptive plasticity, for example, that weakens selection. If you show non-adaptive plasticity, that strengthens selection. I can now study that plasticity in the same way in which a traditional evolutionary model would be used to study the evolution of any trait. Where I think the future lies is that... Um, we know traits like heritability are very context dependent. So any evolutionary textbook you pick up will say, you know, you can only infer the heritability of a trait in the environment that you measure it in. But then when you go to the multivariate version of the breeder's equation, you start thinking about things like the G matrix, which refers to the variance <laughs> and covariance of traits and thinking about how traits are correlated with one another. People stop thinking about context dependency and they stop thinking about plasticity. And in fact, many prominent papers have assumed that those trait correlations are very stable over evolutionary time. And in fact, there's a lot of empirical evidence that says they're not. They're plastic, just in the same way that a gene expression network is plastic. But that's by necessity, right? Um, what do you mean by necessity? Necessity in the sense that we're already talking about matrices. And to think about plasticity when you have these variation, co-variation matrices, it just becomes really, really difficult. To Not have. really, though. It just means that the, the, the matrix that you observe in one environment 
might not be the same in matrix that you see in another environment. If you can measure it in one environment, you can measure it in others. Yeah, you can think of matrices as like RNA transcripts, right? They're sort of malleable in and of themselves. In principle, but it becomes pretty difficult depending on how fine-grained environment you want to deal with. Well, that that sure, that's true. But but I guess my point is simply that I don't have to invoke that the entire uh, you know s sort of statistical machinery that's been used very effectively in evolutionary biology to study how selection acts on traits should be revised i can see exactly how plasticity fits into that into that model and and not require me to criticize you know Sewell Wright or others for not um, thinking about this or not including this. I think they're very much compatible. And so in the same way we could say that how does niche construction affect the strength of selection? Right. Well, I, I think that, you know, everything that you said, uh, especially the pieces about being critical and it almost, um, you know, this was left out. That does, that's not necessarily a reason for doing something new. Whatever's going to be added has to be justified. Absolutely true. But over and over again, when you were sort of defending this brand new position, not not new for everybody, but somewhat new for you, um, you alluded to traits as if they're just easy things to put a circle around. And that's not true. I mean, we just spent 15 minutes talking about whether you can defend gene expression as a trait. I don't think that we're, we're all at a meeting now of uh, several thousand biologists, and I'm I'll be very surprised if you could walk around and get consensus about what a trait is. So to me, the value, the big value of the extended synthesis is that it forces us to really say what the trait is and talk about the multiple ways by which variation arises, which includes, you know, the old fashioned ways of thinking about Breeder's equation sorts of things and the, and the really strong, no question, powerfully predictive mindsets and, and approaches to doing that. But then the really large literature in developmental biology that doesn't necessarily have to invoke much math at all to be able to explain, you know, how fast things grow or why certain organisms have particular developmental plans, body plans, number of appendages, these types of things. I mean, I guess that my my issue is, or it's 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 weird for me to hear you portray that mindset because what's missed by that is really how you get the variation that you work on in the first place. Well, I think it's it's um, for me, you know, this was the something that was very influential, like when I was in graduate school was um, Carl Schlichting's and Massimo Pigliucci's textbook on phenotypic evolution, a reaction norm approach. And I think what, what they really emphasized, which is not, again, a new idea, it's an idea that goes way back, is that you know, we often, for convenience, and we, we think about a trait as what we can measure under a certain environment at a particular time. And we... I think the, 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 the shift towards thinking about the trait as a continuum that varies across environments, um, that's the reaction norm approach. So if, you, if the trait is, for example, something is like the slope of the response, then, then I think the, you know, that, that, 
does a better job of identifying the trait. It, it, it helps bring in the developmental perspective, if the trait or the physiological perspective, because we're, we're looking at how the trait's changing across the environment. But the trait's not how much you weigh or the size or the, the current state. It's more the slope, the, the shape of the function. And, and we can do that. that that's so, so again, I mean, that, that definitely adds something critical. I mean, I, we're on the same page when it comes to that piece, but you, did, you still did the same sort of thing of continuously referring to the trait. When you put this on a sort of XY axis and plot a reaction norm, it is not arbitrary what goes on the Y, right? I mean, it matters enormously, and because biology is a nested process, right? It, I mean, it includes everything from the level of DNA to great big complex communities with all sorts of interactions that hardly, I mean, nobody really can wrap their head around. It's non-trivial to talk about the ability to measure something versus the need to quantify something. So I think the question should be at least as much about what reaction norms we quantify as an emphasis on the fact, emphasis on the fact that we can't describe reaction norms. Absolutely we can, and absolutely we can make predictions, but that doesn't necessarily, I mean, we're not, we don't predict all variation. Mm -hmm. right? So, so if I measure, you know, a hundred different genotypes, and I can plot their reaction norms, and I can see that within this population of a hundred individuals, that the, the slope of that response varies across genotypes that there's a let's talk about a specific trait though yeah let's, I think that's, that my hang-up is groundless sure. in, a, in a specific trait let's say um, you to trait. Let's, <laughs> let's say uh the change in growth as a function of how much food you get or temperature let's say temperature to keep it simple um that's a good one what's that that's a good one okay yeah, yeah. So, temperature temperature is the is the thing that's changing the, the environment and the thing that is being changed is what is the growth rate okay so, so you measure 100 individuals in a population, and what you find is that the, the slope of the, the way that growth changes as a function of temperature uh, varies across individuals, across genotypes. So that's your source of variation. Some of them are really sensitive to temperature, others are not. Some sensitive. grow faster, yeah. some grow slower, some are invariant, um, you know, maybe... Maybe not, but but there. But the point is that there's there's some variation there. So, so to me, what what this really captures is is the sort of dual role that the environment plays. So the environment, in this case, temperature, generates variation across genotypes, and then if the if the environment becomes colder or warmer, it may favor those genotypes that do better at either colder or warmer temperatures. So it also acts as a source of natural selection. And I don't think that requires thinking about, uh, like, so I don't know, maybe it's semantic. Is that, does that require a new extended evolutionary synthesis? Well, I think, you know, again, but I'm sorry to continuously say the same thing. So it's great to now have an example. But you, you have to, when you use that as your example, you have to defend growth rate as the trait. And because in some contexts, many contexts, especially with the things that you guys work on, growth rate, growth rate is a pretty good proxy for fitness, which is not something we talked about but is going to impinge here, it will make sense. But what growth rate you measure 
versus the one that actually impinges on fitness is not so straightforward. To, to sort of push this example, let's circle back to what we talked about, where you were talking about what we were causing, calling the context-specific or context dependence of plasticity, because growth rates, which are plasticities in a sense, are themselves plastic. So, so I know I don't I don't want to get too much into the weeds, and I think we're already going there. But the the issue is. A, a lot of reductionist bio, or a lot of suborganismal biology would argue that unless you understand the details by which growth rate manifests at all of those different temperatures, it's really hard to understand why the reaction norms take the shape they do, and it's really going to be hard to understand or be able to make predictions about how those reaction norms look for species we've never studied before. It's really, it's really going to that, be... That's sort of a more general problem about traits in biology altogether, right? Is that they always emerge from lower levels of organization. That's the 20, and, 000, and we, we never 000. know what the tangled knot is that, you know, that yeah. sort of burps up these traits from some lower yeah. level. Yeah. That's, that's where I'm going with this, though, because yeah. is, is the continued pursuit of that which works sufficient as a model of understanding biology if we're never able to address this piece. It doesn't present the opportunity for unification across levels of organization. And that's what I see the extended synthesis to be pushing for. The actual synthesis in biology that pretty much doesn't exist. Evolutionary theory works really well, but it doesn't capture an enormous amount of what biology is about and what matters. Well, so, I mean, I don't think anybody, I don't think I don't think anybody disagrees that traits are emergent properties um, that sort of develop from lower levels of biological organization. Um, now, if, if you're saying that in order to study growth rate, you need to know how the temperature affects gene expression, how gene expression then affects uh, the release of uh, certain hormones and build certain enzymes and build certain proteins, which then you know, affect a whole host of other things which then affect growth rate, certainly that's a level of reductionism that, but that, but that's a different question. That has nothing to do, you could ask how that system evolved, but that's not going to tell you whether or not temperature is going to act as a selection pressure. It will tell you how it changed. It's not telling you why it changed. I'm not so sure about that because the structure of the gene regulatory networks that underlie that will determine pretty strongly how things work and the physiological filters that they work through. I mean, that might tell you something about the constraints um, on, you know, why you, if you're selecting for like faster growth rate at higher temperatures and you're not getting it, there may be some inherent constraints in the system at that level, which may then lead somebody to go and ask what those constraints are but um, but I, I, I guess I don't see why you need to go to that level of reductionism and how that level of reductionism is representative of the kinds of extended evolutionary synthesis that other people have been advocating for because I think what you're advocating is slightly different from saying that niche construction and plasticity and um, epigenetic inheritance are 
uh, have been somehow left out of the modern synthesis. So, so, so let me ask it another way. Um, you, you focus mostly on plasticity and niche construction, and, and you sort of made the argument that those are not anything that the modern synthesis can't handle. Are, are there other sort of areas and other ideas that people are working on that make you think, yeah, we might need an, an extended evolutionary synthesis? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the modern synthesis came about at a time when we didn't have a really good understanding of the genetic basis of, you know, discrete versus continuous traits. There was real debate on, like, a really fundamental problem that was, was eventually resolved. And it also brought in, you know, and introduced what the major components of evolutionary change are selection, variation. The sources of that variation could be mutation. Uh, they could be uh, gene flow from other populations. They could be uh, genetic drift. Um, those foundations are still there. Now, we have all this, we're now living in an omic time period, and we can, we can examine more mechanistically how genetic variation is manifested. Um, but but the, those found, the extended evolutionary synthesis isn't challenging those, those you know, major building blocks that underlie the foundation of the, of the theory, um, which, 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 which I think has room to, to sort of, you know, the, the, the tent is big enough for everybody to fit under. Um, and, and so the reason I become less comfortable with the proponents of the extended evolutionary synthesis is that, you know, at the time that uh, Sewell Wright, Ronald Fisher, Haldane, Ernst Meyer, and all these guys were, were working on these problems, they, they recognized that there was a fundamental, you know, problem that needed to be resolved, and they were working towards solving that problem. And eventually, the synthesis arose, but they never, they never wrote papers that said, you know, we're working on the synthesis and we're working towards, you know, uh, unifying everything. They just, they just did the work, and so you know, I retrospectively guess, obvious. Retrospectively, it was obvious, and and I, I guess what I would like to see more of is like, if you think niche construction is really important to the evolutionary process. Can you show me how it affects the strength of selection? Can you show me how it affects trait variation? Can you show me how it affects the heritability or the pattern of correlation and covariance among traits? Um, that's, that's what, as an evolutionary biologist, I think you would want to sort of, because then you have a common language that you can talk about. You can say, you know, is, Niche construction increasing variance for selection to act on? Is it making selection stronger? Is it making it weaker? Because that ultimately is what's going to cause the trait to change. Pardon the trait as being the unit of whatever it is, the, 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 the trait as an epiphenomenon of whatever it is that you're interested in. But, you know, if, you, if, um, if beavers build dams that, you know, create habitat for themselves... Um, that presumably changes selection. Now, that selection isn't due to uh, a flood or climate change or something else. It's something they did to themselves. And so that's okay. 
you know, it's still ultimately it's still selection. It's still a process of sorting whether some genotypes that have certain traits that are heritable are better than other genotypes that have different traits that are also heritable, but maybe not so not so good. And so, because if you put it in that way, then I don't see where there's a conflict. And and that's why for me, I I've, I don't really feel comfortable advocating for an extended synthesis. So what Cam is saying is that he thinks the modern synthesis is big enough to accommodate traits like plasticity. He argues that they really don't upset the apple cart the way that some biologists claim. Some scientists take Cam's position, but others say that in some cases, plasticity can allow genes to be followers in evolution. Plasticity first allows organisms to adjust to environments, then genetic changes come in later. The question is whether this plasticity first condition is enough to warrant a big update of the theory. Thanks for listening to this episode. In December, we set a goal of 30 new donors on our Patreon page, and although we didn't quite get there, we were close, and we also got a lot of great feedback from listeners. If you want to start supporting the show, you can make that donation at www.patreon.com bigbio. Donors who give $10 a month or more through Patreon get a shout-out on the podcast. Here are those heroes. Harrison Hartle, Jaime Feliciano, Melanie Danielson, Ryan Haley, Sarah Hall, Susan Hebel, Carol Woods, Gilbert Miller, and Nancy and Lynn Martin. Thank you so much for contributing to the podcast. And for those who don't have the cash to support us right now, please spread the word about us on social media, your local bowling league, your favorite lawn dart club, or anywhere else you and your friends talk about podcasts. Thanks to Matt Blois for writing and production help on this episode. Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey manage Big Biology's social media feeds. Thanks also to Steve Lane for managing our website. And last, thank you to the University of South Florida's College of Public Health for financial support. Music on this episode is from Pottington Bear.